Hey, Melanie, how's it going? Derek, it's going well. Always good to see you. Good to see you too. I got to say, I've really been enjoying this series of conversations we've been having. We've had some really excellent and amazing conversations with people from across the spectrum of opinions and ideas and just everything around building black and brown wealth in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah, a, a good range of perspectives, people who are philosophical, the theoretical, combined with taking action and experimenting in communities. And yeah, it's good. We're learning a lot. Definitely, definitely. It's learning a lot and it's getting me to think about yes. things differently too, especially thinking about things outside of what I know of the Northeast and the experiences there. Um, and what I've been thinking about, especially over the past few the more recent conversations, is just the concept of home. And it kind of is, has existed in many of the conversations that we've had. So Sheena started this off talking about her thoughts about home and how home um, provides stability and it's a way of preventing displacement. And then, you know, we had a conversation on gentrification and, you know, how that impacts people's homes and their choices. Um, and then with Chris uh, around reparations, I definitely felt enlightened by his conversations around Fannie Lou Hamer and how building home and establishing home that way was a way of expressing, a way of finding ways to express your cultural heritage, you know, build your health as well as your wealth. You know, just these different things that we were talking about, home in a very large macro sense. Yeah, macro and then also deep lived experience sense. Mm -hmm. And that's so important when we're talking about any groups of people who've been systematically marginalized in some way, mm -hmm. uh, but so true for black people in the US, whether they're first generation or as you might say, legacy black Americans that so much about our experience, if we're talking about recovery or repair or reparations is also about how we build relationships in a community with our neighbors, but also how we build relationships with a sense of home for ourselves, really a sense of stability. So much of what's at stake for us is yes, economic power and electoral power, but from a place of feeling stable, because mm -hmm. that's what, that was always what was uh, challenged for us from the very beginning. Right, right. And I want to pick up on that little piece that you said about legacy African-Americans. Um, that is something that I've, I've said, you and I've had that as part of our conversations. Um, I don't know if that's a common term. Um, so when I say legacy African-Americans for folks who may not quite get what that means, it's folks who trace their, it's black folks who trace the roots back to the, I guess the days of slavery. I don't know how else to put it. Um, but folks who trace it back, you know, a couple of, centuries versus folks who may have been um, the children of immigrants who just moved here in the past 50, 10 to 50 years, or people who may be first arriving immigrants at, at this time as well. So I was thinking about that. And that's just kind of how I and, it. And let's just clarify too, because you mean tracing their family heritage lineage back to American slavery, because there are lots of immigrants who come from deeply colonized um, territories around the Caribbean, the Americas, South America, Central America. So yeah, it's there's a whole spectrum of us. Um, and we're trying to think about what is our diaspora and how does that relate to uh, claims to land, claims to economic and, and political power in the US. We sometimes do have to think about our somewhat different experiences. And that's why, so that's why you and I have been sort of turning around this term of like legacy folks, folks who trace their history back to Civil War, United States and, and prior. Yes, correct. And thank you for that clarification. And part of the reason that we are talking about this is because of an article, an op-ed piece written by Charles Blow earlier this year, where he was suggesting, he was encouraging well, here, we'll look at the title. So he was encouraging um, Black Americans to move to the South. 
And if you haven't listened to this article, it's on the New York Times. It's only six minutes long, and I would encourage you to listen to it. Um, but it's encouraging Black Americans to move to the South. And the way I was listening to it, I heard it as legacy Black Americans moving to the South in order to build political power. So if more folks reversed the Great Migration and moved South and concentrated themselves in particular states, we could have states that are majority Black and in doing so then have more political power. And it, it, it was interesting for me to listen to as a legacy African-American, as a legacy Black American, because I'm like, yes, I do have roots. I, I know that both of my grandfathers do have roots in what is the South, but I'm two generations removed from that now. And I don't have strong ties. I don't particularly have strong feelings around moving to, well, I probably do have stronger feelings than I realize about moving to the South. Um, but also like my home is Boston. My home is the Northeast. I'm used to certain things. And I'm used to certain things in terms of like transportation and nightlife and um, cultural amenities. But I'm also used to not having things around the gun culture, around the football culture, around certain things that we just don't have in the Northeast that exist in other parts of the South. And I think what also kind of made me think that, okay, this article is not quite selling it for me is that it was accompanied by this image mm. that's kind of like the Black Beverly Hillbillies. And I'm like, okay, if the goal is to convince people to move to the South and this is the image that you're presenting me with. Now, I know it's historic. I know it's a historic image and it's been colorized to look this way, but I don't want to, I don't want to necessarily think, okay, carpet bagging back to the South yeah. is the way of the future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, for one, no argument. <laughs> for two, I mean, we're talking about, I mean, I just like to blow things open and loosen them up a little bit. I think that this could apply to uh, any people of Black heritage in the Northeast, in the Midwest, on the West Coast, who are feeling a certain kind of let's say political dispossession, right? So it's like, oh, could we make something up? And I will say that the model of Atlanta is exciting. I just feel, I, I have a little bit of envy about Atlanta. I'm like, if I had to move somewhere else, I would seriously have to consider Atlanta minus the highways, which is just anathema to what it means to me to live in a place and feel connected. <laughs> but, you know, but being on the inner core, let's say of Atlanta, and so like to be to be able to congregate like that, uh, concentrate political power, perspectives, uh, cultural resources, innovation is kind of exciting and interesting. Part of the article um, is is positing um, that there had been black towns and black states right after the Civil War. So we don't even have it in our imagination that there could be majority black populations. <laughs> and so it's just interesting to think about majority black electoral po populations, right? Like that's interesting and exciting. So I would say all of that has its own kind of compelling um, draw to me as a concept. But that image that you showed is one of desperation. Mm. And so this would be a different move. This would be just as tactical, but not you know, not under the cover of night, not for sheer uh, physical survival for yourself and your family. So how do we think about re-migration or reverse migration in a way that is um, really about building economic and political power in the place that you're going and frankly, taking some of the hmm, economic privilege that comes from being in the North and, and, and applying it thoughtfully. Because I also think if you have droves of people from the Northeast moving to certain locations, we're already seeing it. We're seeing it happening in places like Durham, North Carolina, for example. I know so many people who relocated from Northern um, places to that city in particular. That drives up property values. Now, that's good for folks who own property, but that's not working for folks who are Black, who couldn't own property before our 
uh, influx where it just gets harder and harder. So like, how do you think about this? How do you do it thoughtfully? How do cities and towns run their campaigns? Whereas during the migration, the great migration, there were black newspapers around the country encouraging black folks to come for cover, come for protection, come, we, we can welcome you. But what that meant sadly was being welcomed into what ended up being very ghettoized territories. So how do we do this? Thoughtfully. So those are some of the thoughts that come to mind when I look at that image. Yeah, and I agree with everything you just said. And when I think about building or rebuilding Black communities in some of these towns, municipalities, states, is the foundation as, as strong as we would like to imagine it would be? Because yes, when Black folks moved up here, they were ghettoized. They were forced into you know these very isolated, impoverished places. And that may not be the case in moving south. I, I don't really know, but you know there is still. I mean, we're, we're still looking at governors who are banning the teaching of Black history. We're looking at increasingly. The yeah, increasingly, increasingly, yeah. increasingly. Yeah. We're looking at um, bans on hairstyles, on types of clothing. Um, I know you don't like to talk about this, but the sundown towns. I mean, like, there's these yeah. things still exist. And so it's like, sure, we could move in numbers, but I mean, what are we moving into? What would we be moving into? And that would be, that for me would be a little bit concerning. You also didn't mention guns. I mean, you're hinting at it when you talk about sundown towns, but whether it's a sundown town or not, a town that says, if you're black, you better not be outside after a certain time. Um, not just outside, but in that town. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> You shouldn't be found making your way in town through town after sun after sunset, which is just—it's startling to even form my mouth to say those words. Um, you know, even if it's not that, you also have to think about like what it means to protect your person. Um, and so that does mean understanding at least gun rights culture. And so, like, what? How did? Do, how does blackness relate to that? If you've been in, particularly the, the the urban, northeast and northwest, these are all questions that they seem so far afield, but they come into focus real quick if you're talking about the lived experience of having home, building community, owning property. You have to think about these things and just being free and, and just free because we've seen places. Yes. I don't want to list the names. I don't want to list the names of the people who have been victims of violence, of racialized violence in some of these southern places. We know who they are. I don't want to I don't want to go through that list, but we've seen yeah, them all around the US. Let's just all around the US. Yes, all around the US. But some things that we do in the Northeast that if we did them in the Southeast or in the South generally, I don't know that we would get away with it in the same way. I don't know that it would be seen in the same way. Some of the things that I see in here. I could, I could imagine it happening in the Northeast, but I think it's less likely to happen in the Northeast. Mm -hmm. But again, that's just that maybe that just is my situation. Maybe that's just how I'm seeing things. I could be wrong. But um, I think just some of the, the levels of violence up in the North are just not as prevalent as they are in the South. And I hope I'm not speaking anything into existence. Well, I still want to argue that, but in a different, at another time. Okay. Well, I think, but it's, you're talking about the law. You're talking about as it relates to, uh, you know, policing. Yeah, it has it takes a very very different look and feel um, in the public in the South, I think, than here. At least there's a certain kind of lip service to holding law enforcement accountable. Hmm. Yeah. And I guess it's also a matter of how do you define the North. Because certain states that would be considered northern, for some people, would not necessarily be considered northern by all of us. So there's there's also that too. So I think that you know New England, New York is different from Ohio, Michigan, yeah. Illinois. Like there's different. There's it's different in those senses as well. Yeah. But um, for today's guest, we have someone who has some knowledge of. Black folks who are building towns, building towns from the ground up, from what I understand. So she'll have, she'll be able to introduce us to some new information and tell us about some new things. So let me just put up her card and then I will do her introduction. So today's guest is Carlene Porcena, dedicated to creating an equitable community 
Carlene Porcena is an authentic leader who is driven by inclusive economic improvement. With over 15 years of comprehensive community development experience, Carlene aims to create innovative strategies and partnerships to move the dial on the racial wealth gap. As the daughter of Haitian immigrants, Carlene uses her unique lived experience coupled with professional skills to create solutions to eliminate economic disparities. Carlene is passionate about building bridges between people, communities, and networks with intentions to have an equal playing field for all. She brings to her work a wide variety of relationships with community organizations, businesses, and resident leaders, elected officials, as well as faith-based institutions. We welcome Carlene to the show. Hey, Carlene. Hey, guys. How are you today? I'm doing well. I was backstage and was trying to jump into the conversation. I loved it. Yay! <laughs> well, jump right in. We won't stop you. Go right ahead. Go for it. Well, I think the, the big thing for me was just talking, the way that you all started out talking about home, um, I think is really, really interesting because we associate home with what is, is um, kind of the norm for us. And what's happening is that we're seeing people creating a new normal, creating, um, you know, having options. I think the biggest thing is people really didn't have options before. So they were limited in what they could build and what they could create. And now with, especially with, with um, you know, the increase in remote working and with COVID, people are really kind of designing and creating the lives that they want. And we're seeing such a drastic shift in, um, you talked about legacy uh, African-Americans, but legacy cities that are rapidly changing overnight. Um, and this kind of um, reverse migration, what folks are calling to the South, but also not even to the South, but just internationally, people are really creating and designing what it is that they want for themselves. And I love that the idea of home is so, um, is so different than what we were originally originally taught. Mm. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. So when you think about people, so I like how you're you're readjusting our lens of this framework. So not just talking about moving from one geography to another, but moving from the the lib world to the virtual world, mm -hmm. and then also from domestic to international. Any thoughts on like how you see, like how do you see some of those changes taking effect either immediate or over the long term in terms of how black communities are becoming more or maybe even less empowered? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, so I think some of the narrative, especially, you know, growing up in Boston, um, when we think about the South, there's definitely a sentiment of it being slower or it being, you know, this kind of narrative that you don't um, have access to the same type of opportunities. And I think in one um, stance, that's definitely changing dramatically as well with, you have a lot of corporations that are moving to the South. Um, obviously the cost of living is more affordable than up here, but there are so many incentives that are driving people um, to new areas that I don't think existed before. Um, the expansion of broadband is a huge thing. You know, um, the healthcare industry is massive in the South. Uh, Texas has one of the largest um, medical centers in the world. So I, I do think that the the economic pull um, and now you know the political pull. You guys were talking about some of the policies are definitely shifting um, in in the you know past 10 years or so. Still with the context of gerrymandering though, and that also troubles me because we've seen how Alabama went to the Supreme Court twice and it got slapped down twice around their gerrymandering. Um, Galveston had to go to a court. I don't know if, which court it was, whether it was the Texas High Court or the Supreme Court around their gerrymandering. North Carolina, um, Louisiana, I mean like, there's a weird, there's a weird push and pull here. There's a weird dynamic where yes, mm -hmm. people are moving down. There's more opportunity. There's new opportunities, but the same old tricks are still happening. Yeah. And I don't know. Like I, I still kind of have this. I personally still have this hesitancy around thinking about how I would invest in invest myself in the South and whether or not I would even encourage anybody who was considering it yeah. to to do that. Well, I'm interested to hear from Carlene about models 
you know, like case studies, what can you share with us about examples of where um, black communities are intentionally re rebuilding on a municipal level? Like that's, mm -hmm. we learn about that because that could, you know, that takes us out of the realm of our opinions. Like, of course, us in the Northeast, we're, we have this kind of almost visceral reaction to, mm. whoa, um, that would be such a change in all these ways. But, you know, what's there, what's there to learn from, from these models? Yeah. So there's this one organization called um, the Freedom Georgia Initiative, and it's run by a woman named Ashley Scott, who I had the chance to meet um, earlier this year. And it's literally, uh, I think it was 18 or 19 families that came together, pulled their money together and bought 500 acres of land in Georgia um, with a very specific intentional strategy on healing from the, the you know, racialized trauma that they've been dealing with and building communities from the ground that are reflective of what it is that they want to see. Um, and, you know, it's, it's challenging, right? Like one, purchasing the land, but then having to cultivate the land and having to make sure that um, you're designing something that those 19 families actually agree with. So, even the governing of something like that takes an incredible amount of trust within each other. Um, but it also takes a lot of consistency, um, all of the drafting of kind of documents and paperwork that they have to go through. It's, it, you know, it's not a situation of, you know, let's just build something. They've been at this for a number of years. Um, but what they, what they are starting, I, I feel like in, in Georgia is pretty incredible and the, the vision that they have for the future um, is something that's really admirable because they have been really clear on who they want to work with, um, a sustainability also um, focus and thinking about long-term, not just what are we building for our families, but how do we build for you know three or four generations mm. in the future? Mm. Ali, is one of the Sorry, Derek, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just curious if it was a co-op. So one of the conversations that they're actually deciding between is how do they, um, for, how are they going to formalize? Like, are they going to move into creating an actual um, municipality or are they going to stay kind of in their sovereign uh, state, which also comes with some pros and cons, right? Um, if you are, if, you, if you're not kind of formalized and you don't have the same kind of, um, access to federal funding or assistance or police, you know, control and all of that kind of stuff. That yeah. Exactly. Um, so it's really interesting to kind of hear the conversations and the beat that they're, um, that they're dealing with. So I don't know if they've, they've made a decision yet. They're still kind of at the early phases. I know that they have grown from more than 500 acres um, uh, to, to a bit bigger. But see that ties to, one thing that stands out for me as you're describing this, and it's really compelling, interesting, is it sounds like it's a rural place and yeah. there's land to be bought, there's land to be acquired. Yeah. And I don't know what to say about that, except that's not true everywhere. <laughs> you know? yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Not in the Northeast uh, where there's just land available. So it almost presumes that in order to have access to enough space where you can build out this kind of sovereign model, have this kind of autonomous way of constructing new leadership and mm. Mm. actually need to have access to large land, large yeah. amounts of land and affordable large amounts of land. And also capital, you have to have the capital just to have the land. That's and, and, and it's just true. Like, let's say you can even leverage the capital. Like you actually need someplace to put that capital. You actually need land. So there's something very fundamental mm -hmm. and interesting about when you're talking about remigration or reverse migration, that if, if it almost has to go in that direction because yeah. these in these places where, where migration happens, the great migration happened, are so urbanized. Uh, so dense, and in, in a lot of um, in a lot of circumstances, so in demand that it's actually exactly. part of property. Yeah, and you you remind me of another um, project that 
I had the privilege of um, connecting with a man named Booker T. Washington. <laughs> Go figure, that's his actual name. Um, but he runs this company called Techie Homes. And they've built um, the first Black-owned microhome community in the U.S. Uh, in Atlanta. So just like you're saying, in a very like high-demand area, but you know, creating a um, a community of microhomes and everything that is connected to it has been focused on Black communities, which is pretty wow. incredible. Wow. Yeah. So a little bit of a, a contrast, not as rural, obviously in Atlanta, but definitely a, a high um, interest market. And what he's been able to do, um, I, I mean, they sold out of those homes pretty rapidly. And I think they have um, interest in building their, their model in other kind of urban cities. Um, but it, it's, it's, again, another option. Not everybody wants, you know, 10 acres and wants this land and farm. And oh, the um, responsibility, right. The responsibility. And that responsibility, but really focusing on what is the, what are the different options for people? Um, are, are people really crave that sense of community? So in his design, there's a lot, um, even in the way that like the space is, is shaped, if you look at his website, you're seeing the homes almost like in a circular format. So just like thinking about connectivity is really um, incredible. That's actually probably calling back to, for thinking about Black diaspora, um, African villages too, mm. that yeah. you're, you're, you're encircled by a community, a village of people who know you and who you're accountable to, you're connected to. That's-, that's yeah. Absolutely. Carlene, in the research you've been doing and what you've been seeing, do you have a sense of how these towns are planning for or adapting to climate change? Um, because if these are in the South where it's hotter, it's drier, the tornadoes moving from Tornado Alley further to the East, like, do you have a sense of how they're preparing or if they're thinking about that in some way? That's a really good question. Um... I feel like they must. I mean, there's no way that you can be building towns in that area and not be thinking about it. Um, my conversations were were kind of more around the development, the the kind of general model and access to capital piece. Mm -hmm. um, so we didn't have a lot of conversations around climate change. But I do know that in both, um, especially with the Techie Goes Homes, there's definitely a focus on um, like green buildings and, you know, um, environmentally, um, you know, safe spaces. So, um, but the Freedom Georgia initiative, that, should, that would be really interesting to see how they're thinking about climate. And you have to, because that's racialized, that's a racialized conversation, like the communities that are going to be most dramatically impacted or last to be served or the least to be served are gonna be poorer communities, which are often black communities who are really on the edge, on the edge yeah. and all the ways metaphorically and literally of climate climate crisis. So Absolutely. yeah, what to say about that, I don't know. But yeah, there's there's so many questions about that because yeah. again, again, us, us Northerners, right? <laughs> you know, one of the things that's also hard politically is to, get buy-in from people to, to really acknowledge that we need to move quickly um, at, on, at governmental scale, municipal and state and regional about climate preparedness. And so mm -hmm. if you're talking about going to a region, I'm making assumptions, but if you're talking about going to certain regions in the South where that's just not even taken seriously, that's a serious economic and uh, sort of like long-term viability risk. Yeah, I definitely think it plays into what you all were talking about beforehand as far as interest in moving. Like, how do you convince people to do this? Um, we, you know, we have to worry about snow. That's, that's pretty much it. But when you're thinking about hurricanes and tornadoes and flooding, like all of that is a major reality in the South. And, um, you know, they almost built their cultures around their different seasons. So that's something that would um, people who are moving from the Northeast would have to get used to. I've just had this, I don't know, I, I don't want to call this a weird thought, but just like this interesting thought around the black community generally. And I know that's that's a very tenuous thing, but you know, post-Civil War, 
when we had a lot of legacy African-Americans moving north, you know, there was this, there was the migration. These folks didn't have land. For the most part, they didn't have land. They didn't have property. They didn't have physical ties to where they were. They moved to the north. Some people did become landed folks, but still there were many people who don't own property. They still rent, they, or, you know, they have these tenuous holds onto the land. And now we're asking them, or they're being asked to move again a couple of generations later. And I don't know, for some reason, they just had this concept of, of a class of nomads in the US. I don't, I don't know why that came to mind. But just I know like, why that came to mind because you think like a nomad <laughs> and live like a nomad. Yes, by choice, <laughs> by choice. No one's asking me to move across the, the country to do whatever, to, to support their political aspirations. And so I'm kind of like, hmm, like I wonder if we're setting the conditions I don't know, maybe setting the conditions is too strong of a statement, but if we're sort of creating this generational memory of, hey, Black folks, you needed up north to support the war effort. You yes. needed back south to mm. support the politics. Now come out west to farm, you know, like, what are we what are we setting up here? Like, what's the end game, I guess, is what I'm thinking about. Like, yeah. either for, I mean, for the Great Migration, it was for, like, having a better life. You know, we can't right. we survive here on sharecropping. We're being denied fair wages. We're not being taught properly in schools. We need to move. We're Coming being killed. Out. We're being killed where we farm. I mean, that yeah. that these yeah, <laughs> this was like these were desperate moves. Are we mm -hmm. talking about that now? No, hopefully. No. But are we? Aren't we though? Aren't we though? Because what? How? How are we classifying desperation these days? How are we classifying desperation? I mean, so. I think it really de depends. It's it's difficult because there isn't one black journey. You know what I mean? There isn't this kind of, and we can't kind of discredit the different um, the differences in in classes. People who actually have the opportunity to get up and pick up and move. I mean, if you're talking about families, that's incredibly challenging to do that versus someone who's single, a professional, works a remote job. Um, Derek. Derek. <laughs> no, myself too. So I get it. But um, I don't know if it's so much of, I guess what I will say is that it's not a singular issue. I think before there was a real economic pull and now mm. people are really concerned with economic, political, and also social and emotional, which is yes. why there are so many like connectivity um, businesses, organizations, you know, people are really thinking about their whole selves, education and how, how their children are being taught. So I think um, what inspires me is that it, it's really more of a full conversation as before people like, oh, I got to move to get a new job or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's a very great point. And it reminds me of our conversation with Melinda, where she was saying that um, in previous generations, I think baby boomers, maybe slightly earlier, they were focused on survival. Yes. And now we're the generation that has to focus on everything. So health, wealth, education, all the things. Absolutely. So you're, you're definitely picking up on those points. I appreciate that. But can we yeah. do that with a piece of agency? like really choosing rather than reacting. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I think it, it really depends on the individual's access. Yeah. Um, and, you know, even within one family, there's so many different variations of what people have the opportunity to do. Um, one thing that I did want to mention too was because of the pandemic, um, there's been a number of cities across the U.S. that have actually created different incentive programs for people to try to attract new people to their areas. So we see this huge influx of people moving into Tulsa, for example. Wow. Um, they have a program called Tulsa Remote, where they're actually giving people $10,000 to move into Tulsa. They're helping them, you know, um, find an apartment or find a, find a, um, find a home and offering like free co-working space. So this idea of like creating a new environment is also coming from like a, a municipal um, standpoint as well. And that's so empower powerful just to 
to listen to because Tulsa is where Black Wall Street was. Yeah. Before it was raised before it was just violently, systematically raised overnight. And so like, wow. And I had actually heard that Tulsa was doing incentives and, you know, but I hadn't thought about in the context of this kind of conversation, like mm-hmm. why would this be happening around the U.S.? You know, they're often trying to attract young professionals who hopefully can root and start, you know, build families um, there. You know, and that, that has its place. I think that's important. Yeah. There's so much more that needs to come with it, but yeah. But the incentives are happening across the country. Because mm-hmm. in the pandemic, Vermont, some town. Vermont, Vermont yeah. Vermont as well. Yes. Burlington, I think. And I think maybe yep. some in Western Mass or Western New York. Like there are, and maybe. Marquette you know, as well. They have a yeah. similar work lift Marquette offering $15,000 for people to um, move to that city. So yeah, it's definitely something that picked up. Mm-hmm. Um, but the interesting thing is that when you when you look at some of these incentive programs, there none of them are just um, finances or none of them are just around like, we'll give you capital if you move here. It's like, we'll connect you to the, you know, to friends and we'll give you co-working space and we'll help you find these different networks. So I even think from a um, kind of built environment lens, um, yeah. it's it's really important that people are seeing like, okay, money is obviously the driving factor, but you got to have all of these other things to actually keep people here. Infrastructure. You know, yeah. I mean, rural towns have been doing this. I know that before, well before the pandemic, places like Midcoast, Maine were doing that, even Portland, Maine, to some extent. Mm. But to do that in a way that you're not just trying to attract and keep young professionals or uh, new entrepreneurs, but specifically Black people, that's mm. interesting. That's interesting. Mm. Yeah. So wait, you're saying you have or have not seen that where they're trying to attract black people specifically? Well, I'm curious when you're talking about some of these places, I'm assuming that hopefully by default, they are attracting black folks. I think yeah. that's what you're speaking to, Carlene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, that, yeah, for sure. That. I wonder if these, so where I was kind of going with my earlier thought was, I wonder if if these Northern places with their incentives will increase them in order to um, disincentivize people moving South. And so maybe that will kind of tie into where you're thinking, Melanie, because if 80% of the people moving South are black, will these places say, and, and if diversity is as valued as people say, will they then say, oh, we need to incentivize, you know, this demographic or this, you know, community to stay by enhancing some of the cultural factors, by enhancing some of the financial incentives. You know, what is it that we can do to keep our community here? I mean, I have my thoughts on that both ways, because you look at the Bay Area, San Francisco is what, 7% Black now. And even Oakland, which had been, I don't know what it was, but it was known as being the black center of yes. the Bay Area is becoming less and less so. So, yes. who knows? Yeah. There's so much to contemplate there. And does that, that, does that actually revert? Like Oakland is one of the last places in the Bay Area to turn like that. And does it turn back sooner? Because there is actually increasingly disinvestment. You know, there's um, mm-hmm. Some major, I'm not good at the sports thing, but some major sports team just pulled out of having, um, <laughs> Carlene's laughing at me, um, <laughs> having Oakland as their base. Like that can, like that once those, those big economic anchors pull away, then does it become frankly more affordable again and mm-hmm. black folks and folks of color and new immigrants get to repopulate. So like there's so much transition yeah. happening right now. It's hard to map. And very unequal around the U.S. and urban to rural and within rural communities and different regions about how long they can hold out, how long municipalities and regions can incentivize people. I was just listening to a story on public radio yesterday about how more and more small colleges around the South um, and the um, West of the United States are closing because they're just closing. Small And those are often anchors for one, people to get access to leave their community and come back and bring more back, but also just having a job that's not just a job that is um, tied to an industry that could get shipped out 
and uh, sent overseas at any time. Like you, you, mm -hmm. you know, these institutions we take for granted in the Northeast are really hard fought, hard won, hard kept in a lot of places, including the kind of rural regions in the South that we're talking about. So, I mean, yeah, I, there's just a, so much shifting, demographic shifting. I think also there's gonna be demographic holding in place because some people are just not gonna be able to move. They're just not yeah. going to know that that's an option or be able to take advantage of the option. Right, for sure. Carlene, in your experience looking into some of these um, towns, these newly created towns, have they been dealing with any resistance? Are they sort of preparing for any resistance to their presence and to their creation? Like, have you seen any of that? I'm like, you mean on the political side or? However you want to take it. So it could be on the political side. It could be more socially. So, you know, you could yeah. have like a neighboring town saying like, well, why are they doing this here? You know, they're buying mm -hmm. up like the crops and whatever. They're buying up farmland and building these towns. Yeah, we are jobs. It could be any number of things. <laughs> the jobs conversation. Yeah. Um, that that didn't come up in any of our conversations. Um, funny enough, which is, I hope it continues to stay that way. It could also be just that they haven't, you know, been brought to kind of a larger national scale, and people don't know about them, and they're kind of building organically as things go. Um, but I can't imagine within our climate that there wouldn't be some pushback or hesitation to something like this. Mm -hmm. But I did want to just quickly mention, just because you all were talking about um, Oakland and the Bay Area, but a lot of the, um, I had mentioned earlier, like the growing industries in the in the South, um, they're almost uh, rebranding some of the Southern areas as like the tech South or Silicon South. Mm -hmm. um, Atlanta, I mean, we've talked about it, Atlanta already, but Austin, Austin, yeah. Texas is like a huge uh, kind yeah. of tech world right now. My sister's lived in Austin for six years. And yeah. even in those six years, it's like night and day, their transportation. So like with people comes the infrastructure behind yeah. it. So, you know, the infrastructure that they're building, the train systems and all of this stuff so rapidly um, is, is pretty you know, that's an incentive right there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Say what you want about Texas, but um, Austin's looking pretty good. Same thing with Raleigh. I know you had mentioned North Carolina yes. before. Yeah. Well, we see that the voting can sh change voting power. It can change voting power. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But is that yeah. enough? I don't know. I, I still don't know if that would be enough to get me to move to another state. It's not getting you. <laughs> Derek is mean, not like, convinced. I feel like there just has to be more. I mean, just... So let's say that, because, well, first we all have to agree on a state. We have to, so what states would you pick? So if we go by the Charles Blow article, he says move to the South. That, so that's like, what, technically 11 states. So mm -hmm. we have to pick 11, one of 11 states or a few of 11 states. So that's hurdle number one. Hurdle number two is then, okay, let's say that 10,000 Black Bostonians move, maybe 100,000 Black New Yorkers, you know, 25,000 Philadelphians. Within each of those places, we all come with our own different expectations and cultures and, and habits and stuff. So you get us all, you get the three of us down, the three different cultures of those three cities down into, I don't know, what, Montgomery, Alabama, or, you know, the suburbs of Montgomery. The folks there are going to be like, who are you? Exactly. Welcome, welcome to our town. Who are you? Yes. Why are you bringing these cultures, these traditions that we don't yeah. have? Why should we change what we do for you you know there's, there's just a whole lot of other hurdles and expectations and so you know coming with the expectation expectations that i have now again there are certain things that i would want i would want the transportation i would want the cultural amenities i would want you know a, a less of a gun culture i don't know if alabama has a gun culture but you know if they do i would want less of that and so you know there's just certain things that it's gonna take time so i mean yeah. The article is, it's a sexy article. It's a sexy article in so many ways, in the sense of like, oh, if we all get together and we pool our resources and we pool our political power, we can change things. Mm -hmm. But underlying infrastructure, social and cultural infrastructure would take time. Yeah. That's going to take time in and of itself. And employment infrastructure. I mean, Atlanta, people are going to Atlanta because there are jobs. 
Right? Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and it's not so in the case of like Atlanta and Charlotte, I mean, this has been since the 1990s, people have been going to those areas. It's not like, you know, in the, in the past five years, those, those, uh, the populate, the black population and specifically Atlanta and Charlotte has doubled since the nineties. And yes. in places like Houston and Dallas, there's, I mean, there's a million black residents in Houston and Dallas. That's pretty hard for like us Northerners to conceptualize, Boston. especially in Boston. Like we don't even have a million people in Boston, people. So to think about how much power you could actually create is I, I think part of the why it doesn't feel incentivizing is because we can't even conceptualize it. Hmm. I would agree with that. And I would also add it's it doesn't the numbers don't translate into power yet, or they haven't yet. So as you said, people have been moving, yeah. black folks have been moving to it takes Georgia time. and North Carolina for dozens of years, and yet we still see the gerrymandering. We still see the trouble that Stacey Abrams had with getting elected with the presidential yeah. elections. We still see those. We still, we still see the gerrymandering in Texas. So the yeah, numbers still, I too. It's a has so, to. What, what, you know, people talk about, People talk about the political warring between the supposed two parties in this country as if it's like a culture war. It's a demographics war. This is about numbers and concentration of numbers. That's why gerrymandering. So there is no way, there is no way that you're going to have these shifts in migration without there being a backlash. There's just no way. Yeah, so is it, you're pushing a line of contention always. And Stacey Abrams and her folks understand that. And how do you then marshal more and more support as these lines get more contested and there's more pushback. I mean, it's as simple as that. So again, I think if we Northerners move, we're coming with a certain kind of audacity, a certain level of entitlement. We're bringing mm -hmm. expectations, but we're also bringing uh, sort of political, we're building political power as part of that. And so that's why it's worth thinking about. You're bringing economic and political power, frankly. And so, but how do we do it responsibly and, you know, you, you have to be invited, I think. I think, you know, what we're talking about, about what's been happening in places like Atlanta since the 90s is so much about Coca-Cola and these other big industries that would hire Black people. You know yeah. what I mean? And so, um, so you have to be invited and welcome to stay in all the ways. And I know that that's what you're asking, Derek. Like, how are you actually going to invite and welcome me? Yes. And how do you become invested that's the thing too, because again, if, if if I come from a family that doesn't have that does that doesn't have property, that doesn't have a way to hold on to something already, and I'm being invited down to a place where I'm also not being invited to hold something, to have something, to be invested. Again, how do I not just become another part of a nomadic group of people that's mm -hmm. shifted around from state to state every couple of generations as the economic winds blow? You know, one of the things I've been wanting to think about out loud with someone is uh, watching these debates about in um, in the Midwest, um, Detroit area, Michigan, about um, the unions and the strikes around auto workers, like the era of life pensions and all that. We might be, we might be, we may have moved on beyond that. So it's like if people aren't tied to the place, to the factory. Does that actually start to change the demographic of that place? You know, like this, this whole Midwestern region where people generations long have been in some way connected to like the stability of work in that kind of very place-based um, sector. So I don't know, these are all things that I, I, this is not just the coast, this is not just the North and the South. It's also right. the Midwest. There's a, there's a lot changing right now. A lot of our assumptions are being upended right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, Melanie, you just reminded me of uh, another initiative called the Blue Oval City. So Ford has actually invested in Tennessee to be its like next um, electric vehicle destination. So again, think, yeah, just thinking about such a booming industry like Detroit and the power of the attraction from like a corporate standpoint. Yes. You know, there's no way in 10 years that that area isn't going to be considerably different with the amount of investments that are going in there, the talent that they're going to have to recruit, 
But then again, it's like, what what happens to the people that are currently there right now? Lots that they're going to build because, yeah, right. Yeah. But the challenge I will, so taking that, what you said, Carleen, the challenge I will put back out to Black America is, do we always want to be at the whims of corporate America? Yeah. Yeah. Because that to me is what, that's oh, also yeah. the it's like, <laughs> corporate America wants us here, so we're going to go. Corporate America yeah. wants us here, so we're going to go. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm always pushing for people to move internationally. You know, that's my, <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, you mentioned that my family is is from Haiti. So for me, I felt like I've always thought about home very differently. Like home is not just in Boston where you grow up, but like you have a, a tie to something else, something bigger. Um, unfortunately, you know, I my family can't up and move back to Haiti right now, but you see that there's such a big pull to, you know, Ghana has had a huge amount of people kind of moving to Ghana, doing business in Ghana. Um, there's a bunch of policy that's also shifting with countries doing all these like nomad visas and things like that. So I think that for me as somebody who really enjoys traveling and thinking about kind of a being a global citizen, um, I haven't been anywhere where I haven't seen black people. Ooh, and yeah. it's increasingly getting getting bigger. I mean, in the communities that are being built in Mexico um, is huge just around black culture in these spaces. And it's kind of, it's dope to see like people kind of creating their own communities in different countries as well. Cause that has a whole different, you know, that's a whole nother conversation, but it, it is happening. Black expats. You know, it's not a concept yes. to mm -hmm. think of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mean, that sounds like an episode for us. Yeah, it does. I'll definitely mm -hmm. watch that one. <laughs> you can be on that one too, if you like. Yes. <laughs> well, I think we're pretty much at time, um, but definitely appreciate having you on, Carlene, to share your knowledge about some of these new towns that are being built by Black Americans from the ground up and also joining us in just our, I don't know if it's a brainstorming or just our conversation on a lot of the different historic, current, political, cultural, economic factors that, that go into mm -hmm. building and rebuilding from the ground up. So yes. thank you for joining us and for sharing your time. Thanks for having me. It was great to connect with you all. Same here, same here. And for those of you who are watching, if you have questions or comments, please leave your, leave your questions or comments in the question and comment fields on whatever platform you're watching or listening to us on. And we thank you for joining us and we will see you on the next episode of the Black Landing Forum. Take care, everyone. Take care.